The following podcast may contain spoilers, profanity, and views or opinions that may not be representative of the author's intent of the articles discussed. We don't always take ourselves or the subject matter seriously either. Listener discretion is advised. The following podcast may contain spoilers, profanity, and views or opinions that may not be representative of the author's intent of the articles discussed. We don't always take ourselves or the subject matter seriously either. Listener discretion is advised. The following is a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com. The following is a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com. Welcome to the Alien Invasion number 254, recorded on Thursday, January 10th, 2019. I'm Anessa, along with my co-host Brad, and special guest, Dan Myrick. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. Glad to be here, guys. (laughs) On this episode, we'll be talking about aliens as per the norm, but we'll also be talking to Dan about his new docudrama, Skyman. Before all of that, though, our question... If you were abducted by a fictional alien race, what race would you hope that you were abducted by? A smarter one. (laughs) We could only hope. Yes. One definitely more more intelligent than our current race. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm inclined to agree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I have a lot to learn. I think we all do. It would be very humbling to meet a race that would be able to come to our planet for sure. Gosh, yeah. but even the low races on the totem pole are smart enough to make it across the universe. So, <laughs> yeah, no. they, they yeah you, you, one, one would assume that if you can you can uh, traverse interstellar space, you're going to be a little bit a little bit smarter than than us here on the home planet. Um, Hopefully they weren't a race of uh, intergalactic car thieves, and they just you know grabbed uh, grabbed the ship. Yeah, they they might they might be some ruffians, (laughs) (laughs) spacefaring ruffians. You never know, but that that might be kind of fun, actually. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure we could we could learn plenty from them too. Right, smart enough to steal a spaceship. You got got a little on the ball there. Yeah, like like a group of Han Solos, right? Uh, man, but fictional alien race. You know, I think it would be kind of cool. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Star Trek, and I'm going to say it would be kind of cool to to meet the Vulcans. Yeah, for me, I think it would be Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh yes, going, 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 taking a trip up in the mothership. That would be my. Uh, that would be my dream. Going the Dreyfus route, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know if I could leave the family behind, but <laughs> a but, quick but, trip, you know. Quick, yeah, a quick little vacation wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be bad. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think your answer is better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I changed my answer to dance. <laughs> all right. No, I, and I tell you, I mean, that ending is one of my all time favorite endings, right? Where they initially let out pretty much everyone that has disappeared. Yep. You know, over the years. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s where, you know, all these events over the devil's triangle bermuda triangle and all sure. and they're all coming out and they haven't aged right and right. the famous line where einstein was right and then he says well einstein was probably one of them right <laughs> and it's such a great moment and so i use a little bit of that sort of like time dilation in my own film where you you know I, how cool would it be to, to be taken up by an intelligent species like that. And for you, it may only be a week hanging out and, and chilling out, you know, but you come back to earth and, you know, 50 years has gone by. So, but that was, I just thought that was a really cool way of kind of marrying a, a, a narrative story with Richard Dreyfus in with kind of Eisentinian physics, which I, I just, uh, that was brilliant. And that's, you know, that's Spielberg at his best, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That and Jaws. Jaws just scared the crap. Jaws, yeah. <laughs> I love that movie so yeah. much. Such a great, <laughs> great, great movie. You're listening to a Galactic Network podcast. So uh, this time out, I chose a story from actually USA Today. Just came out today, actually. Alien life possible on nearby super earth, scientists have announced. Now, this nearby super earth is still, uh, what is it, 1. Gosh, 1.5 light years away, I believe. And it's Barnard's star. We've talked about that in the past. And Barnard B is within the Goldilocks zone, but it's still 274 degrees below zero. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the goldilocks zone <laughs> i think it's on the farther edge of the goldilocks zone right um but they're saying it's somewhat akin to europa the only difference is like uh jupiter's moon europa gets some of the tidal heating you know from from jupiter and from its position in in the solar system in general and so deep beneath the ice it is still, it has a warm core, so there's liquid water. Now, the concern here is that, and there's a number of ifs. If it has tidal forces uh, working for it, it could potentially have that sort of same uh, same possibilities here. No, I'm sorry. It's, uh, let's see, 30 trillion miles from Earth. That's where Barnard's star is. And let's see... Uh, because the light, light from Barnard's star provides it with only 2% of the energy the Earth receives from the sun. Whew. Well, that would explain the uh, frigid temperatures. Holy cow. <laughs> I, yeah, this is really interesting. And these researchers just presented this uh, today at an annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Seattle. So they've been really keeping a close eye on the Barnard system. So it'll be interesting to see what else comes about especially when the the web it's the web satellite isn't it mm -hmm. uh, deep space yeah and we're gonna have uh, a couple other telescopes the one in chile yeah that's coming online yeah 
and oh gosh i think the other one that's in the i can't remember if it's the antarctic or the arctic where they they're using they've got it kind of drilled in the ice and they're using that as a part of and they're not necessarily using the ice as the focal point but it's located there because of its unique properties of, of where it's at gosh i wish i had had time to dig up the details on that one <clears throat> so we've got a lot of things coming down the pipe here so that we can investigate some of these other potentially alien life hotspots as it were well yeah i mean you talk about these exoplanets which you know certainly over the last i'd say eight to ten years it seems like not a few months go by where another one is discovered right with with yeah. With our ability to look to reach deeper into space and resolve with the resolving power of our newer telescopes, we're starting to discover that um, at least statistically there are lots of planets in these Goldilocks zones that just increase the odds, right, of sure. potential potential life elsewhere. And I mean, if you were just to extrapolate what we've seen in our own backyard that's you know probably within a few you know million light years of where we are um what we've discovered so far in in these in these uh potential earth-like planets you can only begin to imagine universally where sure. how many must be out there um and and the potential for life on one of these one of these planets in these zones is just i mean it's it's too high to to, to, to negate. So it's like, I think this is another example of, oh, yet another exoplanet that we're discovering that <laughs> fills some of the criteria of life, liquid water in some form or fashion. But for every one of these, we discover there's probably a thousand others that we haven't discovered yet. And, and as we, as our technology improves, we're just going to find more. Yeah. And uh, and that's exciting. I mean, that's really, really exciting. And then, of course, the next step is not just life, but potentially advanced life, you know, yeah. where we where where we may even find intelligent life or at least remnants or signs of intelligent life that may have existed, you know, thousands or millions of years ago. But um, conclusive evidence, we you know, all we need to do is find someone's shoe <laughs> you know, on, a, on a on a on an exoplanet and the, the argument is settled right yep. <laughs> somebody's soda can somewhere yeah so what, one soda can <laughs> a box top <laughs> you know speaking of telescopes i i was just talking to uh, anessa i think it was yesterday that hubble which is a much oh, beloved yeah. telescope that is kind of they're using it until it dies essentially. Right. And uh, they, they rebooted it to get a gyroscope to work, <laughs> which is like the classic it, you know, solution. If you're having a problem, did you turn it off, turn it on again? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's what NASA did. I, I did pictures like, like at, at, at JPL, right? Some dude he's like, well, Hey, Hey Frank, just unplug it from the wall. <laughs> I'll get back in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, oh, holy crap, it actually worked. All right. <laughs> We're back online. We're back online. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Technology's awesome. It is. Yeah. It's a double edged sword, that's for sure. Right. Do you like scary movies? 
did you answer yes to that question? Have you ever thought, hmm, I'd really like to listen to two random strangers talk on the internet about some movies that I may or may not have watched at some point in my life. Sometimes they even bring guests on, which adds to a little bit of the banter. Sometimes we cover the news of the week. Sometimes we don't talk about the movie at all. Sometimes one of us gets a little bit drunk. It's just the way that we do things over at the Podcast of Terror, which is a production of Galactic Netcast, in case you weren't sure. If you're interested in this, please go ahead and head over to gncast.com slash pot. Subscribe and enjoy the crap out of it. What you got? I got I got nonsense is what I got. <laughs> <laughs> Since it's been so long, I felt like I should probably go back to the days of when I used to pull stories that contained Scott C. Waring. <laughs> yes. I wonder what that guy does for a living. Because I think he has a lot of time on his hands. So, Alien Proof. Huge ET base discovered using Google Sky. Um, the article that I found was on express.co.uk. And it talks about this large blue object that shows up on a Google Sky map. Um, and they even include the coordinates if you're so inclined. It's... Um, the RA is three hours, 57 minutes, and 8.63 seconds. And the declinations, minus seven degrees, uh, 11 minutes of arc, to, uh, and 26.2 seconds of arc. So Latin longitude of the sky, or I guess longitude and latitude of the sky, since RA is more of the longitude. But anyway, so um, yeah, Scott C. Waring has found another piece of evidence that aliens exist. And he says that whenever you search using the star map, some strange objects will be found. This giant blue alien base is visible on Google Sky Map, and its dimensions and size indicate that it's bigger than Earth and its geometric pattern is not possible for that size in nature. This is an artificially created object of immense size. This is 100% proof that aliens not only exist in the universe, but are so advanced that the size of their ships are more enormous than anyone ever thought possible. Unquote. That's, that's his big quote. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, as I mentioned, it's not the first time that he's found some proof of alien life. Um, he found another base back in 2018. And um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a blue dot and to me it looks like an artifact um just from the image it doesn't scream starbase to me sure or maybe i'm thinking more of like death star more perfectly spherical but i suppose it could be like a big glob because how i imagine it would be pretty difficult to build a sphere out in space maybe i don't yeah, know i don't know i you know i i remember uh like what was it the the one star that they discovered that seemed to be getting obscured by something and they thought maybe there was a Dyson sphere that was around mm -hmm. this sun. And it, they kind of figured out now that it's uh, a planet may have possibly started to break up around the sun. And that's why it's got all this material that obscures it right. from time to time. Um, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always a little leery of Scott C. Wearing saying that, uh, you know, I found he, a thing. He found a thing. Um, that's usually. <laughs> well, I think also that I mean, we. It's been. It's, again, I, 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 I hesitate to 
poo-poo anybody's idea um, right. right off the bat because, you know, um, you know, I like to try to stay open-minded as possible. But I also know that the human brain is sort of wired to recognize patterns. Yeah. And and certainly patterns, um, facial patterns. We we we're sort of programmed to see faces, things that we that we recognize in in um in 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 inanimate objects. We kind of anthropomorphize. What's the word? Anthro. Anthropomorphize. Yes. When you can, we can look at uh, we can look at, at a screen full of static, and we'll, we'll see a face in it, right? Yes. Or, or a rock formation, we'll see a face in it. Which is, um, I, I can understand why our brains are sort of wired that way out of survival. Sure. Right. Yeah. And um, so we kind of have to look at things through that filter um, when people are seeing faces and, you know, uh, iconography or, or artifacts in alien landscapes. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's, there's one thing to see sort of an ambiguous skull-like formation in a rock face, <laughs> a faraway mountainscape on Mars. And there's another of seeing, um, you know, a a you know a landing pad from a foreign spaceship, right? Right. So, um, and and for me, uh, there, you know, with doing my film Skyman, I, I tap in, I, I I try to tap into a lot of this propensity for us as a species to want to believe. Mm-hmm to want to see things that may or may not be there because we do, I think, have a need to find something other than ourselves out there, something bigger, more intelligent, maybe larger than our own kind of isolated Island universe on, on, on earth. So I respect that we have this desire to see things and I don't discount that there may be something there. But at the same time, I have to exercise the scientific methodology, too. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, it has to pass the stress test um, for it to be legit. Um, Only then it will be real. Right. If it it, it stands up to peer reviewed scrutiny, then then we're we're on our way to something real, you know. And um, but it is still intriguing to me to see these sorts of reports and to see the sorts of kind of, um, you know, evidence out there. We, we were at the Roswell UFO festival, um, this past season. And, you know, we met a gentleman there that is an expert in artifacts on the, on the, on the Martian surface, you know, and totally swears that there are artifacts on Mars that, had inspired, you know, Grecian and, and Roman, um, architecture. Right. And you could see some of the connections there. Like, Oh, okay. I can see where you'd see that in a rock or where that archway that looks like it's part of that rock formation influencing Roman architecture and all that. So, you know, there's 90% of it's probably you're seeing something that's not there, but then there's that 10% like, Oh, you know, I, yeah. You know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt up to that point. So, um, but for me, I'm 
not only fascinated by the potential and the possibility of, of intelligent life out there leaving behind artifacts, but I'm also fascinated by the human condition that needs to see it, that needs to find this stuff and needs to make, make something of all the noise out there. And, right. uh, you know, like this latest, my little news report here to contribute to the discussion, this, the, the mysterious radio signals from deep space that we've yes. seen recently, yeah. mm-hmm. we've had two or three bursts of these radio signals. Yep. And, you know, to me, if I was, if I was a foreign or foreign, I, I guess that that's a, that's a relative term, right? <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if, if, if I, if I was an intelligent life form, you could not help but have radio. But when we are ever since, you know, our, our, our initial kind of I think broadcast of, of um uh back in the early 40s of 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 broadcasting out into space you know if i had a high high energy broadcast that's that's going to be your signature trail right and what we're seeing here these radio signals being broadcast from you know many you know 1.5 billion light years away and we haven't been able to figure out what they're what they are yet which i think is fascinating to me um, and that that may be a remnant of some past um, intelligent life somewhere, sure, you know. Sure. Um, and it's not going to come in the form I would I would guess, at least for me, in in the form of a you know uh, a space car diagram or something. It's going to be some mathematical, <laughs> you know, remember the movie Contact, right? It's going to be yeah, some, Contact was it's gonna, brilliant. It's you know. I mean, I don't know if you read the book or not. The book is even better, in my opinion. But it's 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 some sequence of prime numbers. It's letting you know that um, here's a universal language. Math is the universal language, and here we're 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 sending it out to the universe for anyone to pick up. And that's that to me makes the most sense if you're if you are you know trying to communicate to the rest of the universe that that you you're not you're not the only ones out there. No, agreed. And just the amount of power it must have taken to generate something like that, too, is well. It is. It's a physics question, right? It's like you, you if you don't have the power to generate it, then you need the power to receive it, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's it's a combination of how sensitive are your instruments on the receiving end, and how powerful are your instruments on the on the transmitting end. And, and how can uh, you? pick out the transmission from all the noise exactly yeah it's it's that's i mean we you know it, we bring up hubble right and and he was one of the ones responsible for the background radiation right where we're sort of you know defined the earth or defined the big bang and that that background uh, radiation was sort of discovered by accident, but it was because our in- our instruments became more sensitive, and um, so as we as we progress in technology on our own planet, we're able to reach deeper into space. We're able to listen better. We're able, you know, these exoplanets are a perfect example. Like fifty years ago, we were only speculating that there might be other Earth-like planets out there. It was just a, it was just a, a random speculation. Now we're actually locating them, and these are the ones that we can only see. Right? We're, we can only really see exoplanets by either their gravitational pull on nearby stars 
or how they cancel out the light from a star as they pass through pass through a star's light. And that's a very small, narrow field of what we're able to see, right? So we 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 can kind of then extrapolate from that. Wow, there's probably 80% more that we're not able to see or, de- or, or, or detect right now anyway. So that's very exciting to me. That, that, that to me fuels the imagination that, you know, we may have lots of intelligent life in our own backyard, meaning that, you know, our own galaxy that um, we're just not able to see yet because we don't have the technology. No, exactly. <clears throat> we're still kind of infants technologically. I mean, to, to achieve that level of, 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 of even flight to, to be able to traverse long distances and, you know, not have to worry about different forms of radiation that wouldn't harm you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much that we don't know yet. And it's kind of interesting to, and that's why I think you, Anessa and I really like to, to read stories like that because it's just, we're learning something all the time and that's really fascinating. Right. And some of them, like they do, like, I don't know. <laughs> they, they do leave me wondering. Cause it's like, I, I don't know one way or the other if it's an actual object or what have you. Um, and then there's some where I just see it and I'm like, that's that's an artifact. And I used to work for an astronomy program at a university. And on occasion, we would get images or rocks um, from people that, you know, thought that maybe they were from space or it's a UFO. Um, but... I think there were a couple of times where we actually had like an, a legit meteor meteorite, which was kind of cool. Um, but for the most part, like the photos and stuff that folks would send in, um, they were all easily explained. Because <laughs> um, I do as kind of a hobby. I don't even consider myself anywhere near professional, but um, just having studied some photography and taking pictures and stuff for fun. Um, some of them were very clearly like lens flare and, and whatnot, right. but, you know, I always hope whenever I get a picture, like, oh, maybe this is something that I don't maybe know what it is. It. Yeah. And I had one gentleman call in one time and he's like, okay, so I keep seeing this object to the West and it's around sunset and it's like moving around and it's never in the same spot. And I don't know what it is. And I've seen it for the past couple of nights. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's Venus. And he's like, no, it's not Venus. But that's the only thing that I could under, well, without seeing it. (laughs) Logically, that's the only thing that I could say that it was. And I even checked with like a couple of other people, like my boss and coworkers who had been in the field of astronomy for like 30 plus years, each one. Um, And yeah, they all, I felt bad because the guy was very persistent, but I'm like, yeah when venus or any bright object gets slow on the horizon because of the um instability in the atmosphere it looks like it's dancing around um well that and autokinesis too right (laughs) things also look bigger than they are when they get closer to the horizon because i mean the moon looks massive when it's coming up or when it's setting but when it's in the sky it doesn't look as big um and that's why you always have to like i mean like dan was saying before you have to have something kind of concrete uh, enough, not just, you know, visual, not just a visual of it, like a, like a, a, a first person account. You need to have other data to kind of put it all together and give it context and, 
you know, get the full picture of the thing. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, witness accounts only will take you so far. It's where you can get other things to, you know, <clears throat> get uh, to kind of back up the, not so much back up the tail, not lying, <laughs> but, you know, just to, to, to get all the, as much data together to fully understand what was experienced. So. Right. And going back to Dan's story about the gentleman in Roswell about the architecture, I can totally see that because, you know, you had astronomers back in the 1800s looking at Mars and thinking that they were seeing channels. Yep. And so you had, I don't remember his name, um, Giovanni Schiaparelli, um, and then who initially was like, oh, the, I forget, it's like Canales, the Mars or something. Um, and then, again, you had another astronomer here in the States that Percival Lowell, uh, who they named the observatory after, who made that idea more popular. And so you had that come up in stories, but, you know, come to find out that it's not really channels. It's just evidence of water that was once on, on Mars yeah. that eroded away and then the water evaporated and you got and there you caps go. and yeah. So anyway. yeah, that, that's what fascinates me. There, there's there is a there is a uh, two sides of the brain, at least speaking for myself, that is very much a science based um, examination of reality for me. Mm -hmm. um, scientific methodology, uh, you know, it has to pass the scrutiny, peer reviewed research. Um, you know, it matters that things hold up under criticism sure um, otherwise it's just faith right yeah. no exactly exactly but at the same time there's the yeah, other part faith. of our brain <laughs> that really wants it to be true right yep yep we're all scientists most and i've got i've got some really dear friends i've got a dear friend that's an astrologer not astrologer, astronomer, sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> that um, that we're all ultimately dreamers, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're you know you 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 look at almost any science program from cosmos from Carl Sagan on up, and they're dreamers at the end of the day. They they're they're dreaming of the potential of humankind, the potential of intelligence, the potential of the cosmos. So we have this romanticized notion of what this potential could be. And, and, and it's easy for us to fall victim to this romanticized mm -hmm. notion, to want to see things that aren't there. Um, so we have to sort of like check ourselves and, and make sure that what we are seeing is real, is verifiable, and and holds up under scrutiny, which is what I love about science is that it is by its very definition open to criticism. Mm -hmm. And, um, but because of that, it, it explores areas of the mind, explores areas of, of, of our realities that we otherwise wouldn't explore if we were just rooted in faith only. Right. Yeah. And, um, so if I were to look at, the universe from a purely mathematical statistical standpoint and say what are the possibilities that intelligent life exists in the universe i'd say it's pretty high possibility yeah no now it may not be anywhere near our neighborhood 
But if I were just to kind of do the numbers yeah. of galaxies, the billions of galaxies out there, just what we've discovered in exoplanets in the Goldilocks zone in our own backyard, I mean, it's you'd have to be a moron to not think <laughs> that there's some level of life out there um, on some galaxy somewhere in the universe that we may never know exists. We may never be able, we, we are physically not alive long enough for light to travel to get to us to find out unless there's some, uh, you know, uh, some, some, some form of, of travel faster than light that we haven't discovered yet. But the, the, uh, the, the sheer possibility is there for me. Right. And that's what, that's what sparks my imagination. And, um, and as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, um, I love marrying these two sides of our brain. I love, I love, you know, rooting the romanticized notion of, of wanting something to be bigger than ourselves out there, rooted in the mathematical scientific side to make it sort of, you know, make it sort of work. And that's, I think that's what I love about Close Encounters so much is they sort of did that brilliantly, um, where they made the math work for the, for the, for the romantic. And I, and, uh, and that's, I think that's awesome. (laughs) No, I, yeah, I can't remember who I was talking to about this um and then we'll get back to uh back to the show (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but uh you know scientists and science fiction you know in a lot of cases people have come up with ideas of you know since jules verne forward have come up with ideas for you know uh, for a technology and then I think that in a lot of cases, as these young scientists might, you know, read these things or see these things, they're like, what if, you know, do yeah. we, is there a way? And, uh, and I think that that, that marries. Look at, look at Isaac Asimov as a perfect example. Sure. With robotics, psychohistory mm-hmm. and the foundation series. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this, how, how prescient was, was his, his, his work back in the day. And again, like you said, it's science fiction is marrying science and our sort of romanticized notion of storytelling that that part of our brain um, that need or desire to find meaning and what we see and what we look at is always been fascinating to me. That's what I've, why I've been such a fan of science fiction. But uh, but we'll, I, I don't think that'll ever stop with us. And, I, and I'm curious if other intelligent life forms have the same desire. You know, we assume that we are not unlike other intelligent life forms, that we're, but we're a completely, you know, sort of contained evolutionary track, right? Yeah. We can only see life through our own prism of experience and our own, our own evolutionary track. You know, it's difficult for us to conceive how some other so-called intelligent life form would perceive the universe or care. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting to contemplate. I, I always like thinking about it and then I go full circle and have a glass of wine and (laughs) (laughs) And, sometimes you just need to take a break from that. Yeah. I'm watching an episode of community and I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to a galactic network podcast. For more, go to gncast.com. Well, uh, speaking of observations here, 
we're going to jump into the sightings and that's where we pick a, uh, a particular report, usually from uh, MUFON. I'm sorry, MUFON. <laughs> MUFON. Yeah. yeah I, I always do the, the Mulder MUFON. <laughs> the yeah, Mulder the X-Files, he, he uh, says MUFON and yeah. you get a chuckle out of it each time. <laughs> um, but uh, what it is, is it's a uh, kind of a recording of an eyewitness report uh, that's been sent to MUFON. So uh, here we go. Uh, a Kansas witness at Heston reported watching a silent triangle-shaped object just above 500 feet with three white lights at its points and one red light centered on its bottom, according to testimony uh, from, from MUFON. Uh, the witness was sitting in his company parking lot watching cloud lightning as a storm passed by at 5.35 a.m. July 29th, uh, of 2018. I was going to say this year. I'm like, uh, no, no, not, not anymore. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Still in that grace period of writing 2018. Right. Yeah. yeah. Every day. <laughs> About two months. <laughs> uh, always an adjustment. Yeah. Uh, uh, they continue to say uh, they noticed lights coming into view out of the driver window above the car. They spent a few minutes trying to make out what it was traveling roughly at five knots, which means this person has either aeronautical or nautical experience. Uh, a couple flashes of cloud lightning in the distance showed the shape of the triangle with no facets or edge differences of any of the three sides three straight lines only continued to follow the storm until view was obstructed by the parking lot lights. It moved slow and in perfect, uh, in a perfectly straight line. Uh, they had no assumption of what it was though, possibly a life watch helicopter until the rest of the lights came into view. There was no sound that they heard. Now the uh, MUFON case director in uh, Kansas closed the case as an unknown aerial vehicle. Uh, the rest of the report goes on to say a dark triangular object that reflected light appeared solid and had an outline. Uh, the surface was dark and had no structural features. Actual size is indeterminate. The object had white lights and one red light in the front center with dark surfaces. The exterior lights were unwavering. The elevation of the object was above 500 feet. The object was at least 501 feet away to one mile from the witness. So there we go. And this was uh, Heston is a city in Harvey County, Kansas, population 3,709. Salute for Hee Haw fans. All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so there we go. That's our sighting for this particular episode. That I really like that they actually had a chance to review this one because we don't always yeah. get that where someone has had a chance to look into it and has come up with some sort of conclusion kind of follow-up yeah it. yep so i really like that this one had that the galaxy far far away feels closer now than ever before and your guides through this galaxy are ready to help i'm zach hagenbusher one half of the new jedi archives podcast with ben schultz join us every other tuesday for our experiences with the star wars saga from the core films that we know and love well, you know, some of them, to the annals of history and the works that shaped Star Wars into what we know it as today. Just jump in wherever you'd like. Download an episode of the new Jedi Archives today. 
So, uh, Dan, we've been talking for a while now, and we figure we're going to talk directly about your project, Skyman. And before we start, uh, I really want to say that the Blair Witch Project scared the ever-loving crap out of me uh, <laughs> when I watched it. And it really, and I get the sense while we've been talking here that it is somewhat about perceptions of reality to a certain point. Um, what you witness versus what has actually happened um, and everything about that just fascinated me and just, like I said, scared the crap out of me. And now you've got this project Skyman. And as I was looking through everything, I, I, I kind of, I, I had a few questions and I wanted to ask you a few things. Um, is there, cause you're calling Skyman is a docudrama. Right. And it, it feels it reminds me not entirely of found footage, but it, it, it approaches it from a kind of a news or an interview or reporting on a real event that has happened. And I kind of wondered um, what is it about that narrative style that really draws you uh, seemingly towards that for a project? I mean that's a that's a really good question. I, there's there's it's interesting because when we when we were when Ed and I Ed Sanchez who was my co-writer director on Blair when we were sort of coming up with the idea for Blair Witch, um, you know we we were sort of kind of I guess a product of of the the emerging technology of video, um, reality TV that was just coming out at the time. Certainly twenty four seven news was coming out around that time. Sure. And, you know, when you, when you see something on a documentary, when you see something uh, reported in the news or war, war coverage or something like that, it, it operates in a different part of the brain, you know, like someone getting shot, um, you know, on a, on a, I don't know if you guys remember, but like that famous Vietnam uh, footage where that I think I think it was a Viet Cong prisoner were getting shot in the oh, head. Yes, I actually yeah. was doing something and I actually ran across that picture just yeah. recently. Yeah, when you see the full video of that or something or something along those lines, it's it is um, remarkably impactful emotionally, yet visually sort of anticlimactic, and that's what a documentary is like most of what you see that affects you emotionally um, is sort of anticlimactic from a visual standpoint because your brain is telling you what you're seeing is real. You know, a gunshot to the head isn't the Hollywood version of blood splattering all over the wall and people flipping and, you know, so on and so forth. It's kind of underwhelming, but the that underwhelming part is sort of what works on your on your brain. And so, all, you know, that's the long version of saying that we wanted to have a movie that sort of played in that space in your consciousness that was real, felt real, and did not feel contrived, thinking that, that the scares would be more amplified in the imagination of the viewer as a result, right? Yeah. So, um, so Skyman sort of takes a little bit of a, a, a kind of a page from that thinking that although it's not a straight up horror film, 
like Blair Witch was, it's still playing in that same space where, although it's not necessarily trying to be a real so-called documentary, it's playing in that same aesthetic and in, in that, that, that um, conceit of it feels real. There's something about it that feels authentic, that feels real, that the characters you're watching are genuine, and the scenes and the emotions that are coming through operate on the viewer's brain in a different way than a slick Hollywood movie. And that fascinates me. That There's something about that that draws me in as a filmmaker that, one, gives me a lot of creative flexibility because I'm not sort of burdened by having to light every scene perfectly or have these flowing dolly moves or, you know, have all this sort of contrived, premeditated Hollywood sort of effects. I can just let the moment and the actors be super pure and super genuine. And I love that purity. I really am attracted to that. And this is sort of ironic because I came from the school of lighting and camera and photography and 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 you know the the Hollywood school of how to make movies but this improvisational kind of method approach to filmmaking I find very liberating as a filmmaker and I think Skyman is sort of like me going back to my roots on Blair and playing in that sandbox again where things are more improvisational Things are more spontaneous, and you're and you're and you're sort of more in the kind of the pure realm of keeping it simple, but allowing the audience their imagination to sort of take hold, like we did with Blair. Sure. Um, and hopefully that's where it'll go. You know, when, once the end analysis is done, and we're and we show the movie, that people will appreciate it for that. But that's that was my my has been and and currently my attempt with with Skyman. In in looking at uh, the Skyman Indiegogo page to look at some of the clips that you provided there, I really felt that earnestness, especially with uh, the gentleman who was sort of a friend of uh, of the main character of of Carl, um, and he's pointing to 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 the mountain behind him. Right. He's when he's when he's discussing it with the interviewer. And there was just something really kind of compelling and honest about his his presentation of his remembrance of these events. And I had that moment of, oh, you know, this is, I've, I felt like I was watching an interview. And then I had that moment where I stepped back and I'm like, you know, wow, this this person is acting and they're selling this this level of earnestness, but it's not a polished, you right. know what I'm saying? It's not right. polished. It feels yeah. genuine. Um, and I think, you know, just thinking back to, to, to Blair Witch, that's what I think also helped pull you in even further is just that, that, that feel of, uh, of, of honesty and presentation. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of, you know, at this, at the risk of sounding like a really bad, pretentious film. <laughs> sure. It's, it's, it's kind of a meta approach to making movies and I'm, you know, it's completely contrived. I mean, we're, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, pretending that that any of this is real. But but what what I'm attempting is is that the way we show this story, the way we show these characters, 
feels real. And, 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 there, and a lot of thought goes into how do we convey a narrative? How do we control a, a, a nuanced narrative and have it feel like there's been no control? That it, that it feels like it's spontaneous, that it feels like it's, um, that we're along for the ride. Um, and that's the tricky part. And that's um, something I felt like Blair Witch didn't get enough credit for, especially with the actors, that a lot of people just felt like they just went out with a camera in their hand and they just shot what the hell they felt. And <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that so many months went into the preparation of making that. I, I, you know, and it's no different with Skyman. We're going into a lot of theory, a lot of, a lot of meta analysis about I mean, here's a perfect example. Like, I'm shooting a scene with our my main actor on Skyman in a hotel room or out at the, like, Roswell UFO Film Festival. And we're having to sit there and decide on each shot whether or not our actor would have a lavalier mic microphone on, right? Sure. Yeah. We're having to say, okay, would, the, would me as the filmmaker have you labbed up right now? Because... Having you labbed up implies this is a premeditated moment, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's one example where we're having to think through every action we do, every shot that's done um, to be completely real and authentic um, from just simply an audio standpoint, right? So, um, and as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, I find that fascinating, but again, liberating. It, 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 it kind of breaks the chains of normal Hollywood style filmmaking, which I love. I have nothing against it. I'm not, I'm not breaking these chains because I hate the chains. It's, it, you know, I, it, I, I love a big blockbuster movie as, as much as anybody, but for this kind of movie, for this level of budget, I think um, this style is, is really appealing to me. And um so I forgot what my point was, but it's, you know, it is, it is um, the, the, the end goal is for the audience to, to ultimately identify with the characters, to buy into the story, and to ultimately um, be emotionally involved. And that's the goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, what is it about, and, and I think we might have covered it a little bit, but I just wanted to kind of solidify this. What do you find uh, really compelling about UFO enthusiasts? Well, I was, and, you know, I am, you know, but I, I was one for many years. I mean, I, when, I, when I was growing up in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, UFOs, Bigfoot, Devil's Triangle, um, you know, the paranormal, that was all the zeitgeist when I was, when I was growing up. I mean, I had sure. subscriptions to UFO magazine. Oh, sure. And, you know, when Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, that was like a religious experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, wow. You know, I mean, it was, I had a UFO club when I was 13 which was like me and three of my buddies in the neighborhood that operated out of my bedroom. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and we would go and on these sort of like investigative missions in the neighborhood for UFO sightings and whatnot. So I was, I've always been a, um, a lover of science, a lover of the cosmos and UFOs always 
obviously dial into that. So as I got older and became more educated, more knowledgeable, more mature, I realized a lot of the stuff that I was sort of buying into was, you know, kind of crazy BS. But at the same time, um, there is an entire kind of percentage of our population that really continues to believe in this, that that buys into the this, this sort of fantasy. Um, and I hesitate to use the term fantasy. This, this need, this sort of this need to um, have something that's grander than themselves, that, that this, one of the scariest things, without getting too philosophical here, but one of the scariest things I think about human nature is that we feel like we're out of control, yeah. that we can't control our environment. So we, 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 will, we will default to religion or we'll default to a lot of different things. And I think um, intelligent beings outside ourselves that are smarter than us is another version of that where, oh, there's someone out there that's sort of smarter than we are that can kind of keep things in check and um, we're not alone. So that is a kind of, I think, psychological need in most humans that I've met. And that fascinates me. I find that really an interesting kind of part of our psyche to explore. And Skyman attempts in an, in its kind of meager way to house all that within a single character, a character that we all identify with, that at first you feel is kind of a dumb redneck, but you start to realize, oh, this guy's sort of like an Asperger kind of genius dude that we can't be too quick to judge. And that over time you realize, well, maybe this dude's onto something, right? And that he's dialed in in his own weird savanty way into something that might be legit. And over time, as you follow him through his sort of rural American, um, you know, backdrop, uh, you start rooting for him and you start rooting for his mission. You start wanting him to succeed. And, and I'm hoping that Carl is a little piece of all of us, a little, a little, a little, a little piece of romanticized, like, drive that we all have that maybe there is something bigger than ourselves that we are chosen um, and, and, and one day we'll find it. Um, we'll find our true purpose. And, um, and I, that's always fascinated me. When I, even when I was a kid, I've, I've always thought that um, what if, what if um, there is something or somebody out there that, that um, knows a lot more than we do. And it's just interesting to speculate. So um, it's, it's been sort of a common theme in a lot of, a lot of projects, a lot of films that I've done. I did a movie called the objective years ago that sort of plays into these same kinds of themes. I think Blair Witch plays into those themes. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm just fixated on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to play around with though. Right. So going back to, Carl again. Uh, you mentioned that he was um, an Aspie, like uh, he had he has Aspergers and a bit of a savant. Um, was there a reason that you decided to take this direction with Carl to have him be like on the spectrum? 
Well, he Carl was inspired by this. Um, you know, I like when characters sort of break convention. I mean, we we all have a propensity. I, I shouldn't say we all do. Many of us have a propensity to sort of like judge a book by its cover. And there's a, a good friend of mine that worked as a set dresser in Florida that told me this story about they would um, be driven out to set on the east coast of Florida every morning, first thing in the morning, by a Teamster driver. And the Teamster guy was this kind of typical, you know, muscle-bound redneck guy that drove them out to set for, you know, two hours, um, you know, on the on the highway, and they would park in the parking lot. Once they got to set, they'd park in the parking lot, and they would have to wait for about 20 or 30 minutes before their call times. And so every morning, this kind of teamster, kind of burly guy would whip out a New York Times crossword and blow through it in like 15 minutes every morning. And that always stuck with me. That story always stuck with me. It's like, oh, my gosh, this guy you think is some burly redneck is blasting through the New York Times crossword puzzle in like 15 minutes. And. So I took that as a little bit of a kernel of inspiration and made Carl out to be someone at face value who think it's like, oh, this guy's kind of dim or he's sort of childlike. But then over time you realize, oh, well, actually, there's something much deeper here. There's something there's something that maybe if you were insightful, you would catch. And I and part of me understands if there is an alien out there, they could see, they would they would they would choose him. There's something about him that the aliens would would dial into. So, um, you know, our actor Michael Selly played that role really nuanced and really well. And um, so, I wanted somebody that that uh, kind of walked that line between at at. At first, you think he's sort of a simple guy, but then over time, you realize there's much more underneath. There's more layers underneath. And I love when characters do that. Sure. That almost seems to kind of play into your, uh, from what you've described, <clears throat> giving people sort of the, the components to develop their own conclusions and kind of develop their own reality or their own lens for the particular film that they're seeing. Yeah, you slowly kind of working them out of that box. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and it's risky. It's, it's a, it's a risky way to go as a filmmaker because it, you know, there is, there is certainly the version where you really map it out, you play it paint by numbers, and here's what everyone's supposed to think on every scene and every moment in the whole movie, and then there's the version where you're sort of like, you know, here it is, here's, here's the recipe, and. Here's a lot of things that are a bit that might be somewhat ambiguous, but I'm allowing the audience to sort of like project in a way through mm -hmm. these scenes. And the ending, much like Blair Witch, is going to be somewhat ambiguous. And my hope is that it, it spurs a lot of discussion in the, you know, out in the lobby of the theater sure. of what happened or what didn't happen. Um, but I, and I may fail miserably at it, but I, I got to make the attempt. I got to make the attempt to challenge people, to make them think, to sort of like challenge their conventions. And, you know, to me, people are complicated. You know, our, our experiences are complex and there is no, 
there is no there is no simplistic answer to anything so why not make movies that reflect that yeah. and let the and give the audience the benefit of the doubt that they can kind of like challenge themselves and think through stuff and and, and come up with their own conclusions so um we'll see we'll see if it works or not <laughs> but but i but I, I love i love playing around in that sandbox yeah oftentimes i, I think that we <clears throat> we put a simple label on something so that we can quickly, you know, classify it. And, you know, is it a threat? Is it not? Or, you know, try to figure out the reality of the thing. So we just put a label on it quick. And then over time, if you get more and more exposure to the person or the thing, you start to learn more about it. And it's not just that label that you quickly stuck on it just to quickly, you know, uh, put it somewhere in your head you find out that there's more to it. And I think that that's, that's one thing that, that you guys, I think really accomplished with, with Blair Witch in that ambiguity, giving people the components to make up their own possible conclusion as to what occurred. Yeah. And that's, and we're getting back to what inspired me as a kid. That's what, um, if, if you were to sort of encapsulate the thought that that thought you just described in a photograph, that's why those grainy, fuzzy photographs of UFOs in those old magazines were so effective, right? Because they had that level of ambiguity. It's like, is it a is it a hubcap? Or is it really a flying saucer? <laughs> yeah. Right? And you could sit there and debate it forever, right? Mm-hmm. Was it a hoax or not? You know, and that that lack of definition that that ability for the imagination to sort of take over and fill in the gaps um has always fascinated me and um and blair which was no different that sort of plays in that same space skyman sort of plays in that same space and i think we will forever as you know as a thinking animal um will always be trying to fill in those gaps so um and I love it when films do that. I love when films give you just enough to get you get your brain going and get you thinking about stuff and contemplating. You know, and again, I'm I'm not averse to a good old-fashioned Godzilla movie, right? That just lays it all out for you and tells you what you're supposed to be thinking. But um, but at the same time, I like I like dipping my feet into these kinds of films that sort of um challenge you and 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 allow your imagination to sort of like fill in these gaps and that that's fun that's fun too yeah i I gotta say too excuse me that uh the ending for like the thing yeah it's perfect because you got kurt russell you got uh david keith just uh just sitting there looking at each other like okay it's one of us and then we 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 pull out right and we'll never know (laughs) yeah it was and and that's always and I think that's what helps make a movie timeless in a in a certain sense or has that impact because it now leaves you the person who has experienced this to draw your own conclusions and come up with perhaps your own ending um, and maybe reanalyze it come back and watch it again to see if you can find clues that would help make your case that the ending that you have in your head is the legitimate ending. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think um, films, 
I think I think films that treat the audience as a collaborator are much more timeless than those that don't. Sure. And that's that's what I hope to do as a filmmaker is 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 treating the audience as a collaborator in in the experience in the process. Um, the, my favorite films, I feel like that's what's being done to me, um, and and I and it's you can't help but appreciate that. You can't help but want to go back and revisit, yeah, yeah. and rediscover, and go. <laughs> well, what did he mean by this scene? Let me go back and look at it again. You know, oh, there's a different meaning. You know, there's a different there's a different question being asked of me here, and I love when films do that from really really good filmmakers. Um, or good books or whatever. Any good, good piece of art does that, you know? Um, so I can only hope to aspire to that. <laughs> I do have one last question before we uh, wrap up the interview portion here. Um, would you say that Carl's journey is like one of trying to make sense of what happened to him or is it something else? Or can you not tell us that? Because that's really kind of the whole point of the film. No, I think I think that's a valid analysis. Is that he's trying to make sense of what happened to him because there's there he's 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 now getting ready to turn forty years old, right? And and he's he's referencing a time of his life back when he was ten, something that was profound that happened to him, you know, not necessarily traumatic, but it was a huge moment in his life, and um, and now it's sort of reemerging in his brain. Uh, so he's trying to make sense of what it means. What, what, what was the meaning of the original visitation? Why him? And why does he feel compelled that there's going to be a reunion? What are the answers to these questions? So he's definitely on a search, you know, sort of on a mission in a way to, f- to try to find answers as to why this is happening. So it's definitely, um, I, you know, it would be for me, you know, what's the meaning of all this? Why me? You know, how much of this is legitimate and real? And we try to portray it in a way that Carl is having to sift through a lot of chaff, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a, as we all know, there's a, there's a lot of commercialization with the UFO subculture. There's a lot of BS. There's a lot of people trying to you know, portray themselves as legit um, and not. So he's sifting through a lot of these waters. He's, he's trying to navigate a lot of this himself. So there's that going on as well. But ultimately, he's looking for answers and in a way trying to decipher if this is real, why him? What is it about, what is it about his experience that he's reconnecting with now that he's turning 40 that is so important? And how could you not want to go back out to that place in the desert to find out? Yeah. So, so me as a filmmaker following this guy on his journey, I got to go. I got to follow this guy. And it may be a complete bust. It may be ultimately we see this individual come to the realization that his life was meaningless and that it was all for naught and that, um, that his goals and his hopes and his dreams are dashed against the rocks of the, of the Apple Valley high desert (laughs) or not. Right. So, 
there's a lot going on with Sky Man, at least in my head as a filmmaker. I hope it gets conveyed on the screen, but um, that is the goal is to is is for it to fulfill a lot of those questions. No, it sounds great. And I'm really looking forward, especially after talking with you, Dan, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this film. Right. Do you, do you have any possible dates as to when this could? Well, we're, we're right now, we're sort of hoping for the late spring, you know, early summer. I'm, I'm in the process of editing right now. Um, we're going to Sundance. Nice. to show a teaser sort of an extended teaser for the film that gives uh, you know a lot of people a little bit of a taste of what's to come um and that will be available both on i i think ihor.com as well as denofgeeks.com so that's coming up so um but yeah my my goal is to be done with the edit in the late spring and um and then then it just comes down to economics do we do we sell this to a netflix or an amazon or who picks it up and when does it get released and whatnot but we're 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 very optimistic we we think this film is as modest as it is in budget and it's a in its initial production approach i feel it has a pretty big audience in this culture in this demographic and 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 not only in the kind of ufo um subculture but i think even broader than that i think it, it i think ultimately it will tap into what a lot of people feel about um their pursuit of 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 you know what's the purpose of life and what is their role in all of it and, and that sort of thing so hopefully it'll break out into the in the more mainstream but um but i i I, if I were to make a prediction, I would probably say late spring, early summer, we'll, we'll, we'll have this thing ready to go. Cool. I'm Excellent. really looking forward to it. Like I said, if you guys go to, uh, just do a, a, a Google search for Skyman and Indiegogo and you'll, you'll find the page or you can go to, uh, it's Skyman movie. Skymanthemovie.com. Skymanthemovie.com. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to make sure that we have all of those links uh, to this uh, on uh, on the show notes for this particular episode. So uh, nobody has to worry about that. We'll, we'll make sure that you can get to all this stuff so you can see this for yourself because it's uh, from the clips that I've seen, uh, it's it's compelling. And it feels, you know, like I said earlier, it feels honest, it feels earnest, and I do feel like I am watching a documentary being made. So, um, yeah, I really want to see this. <laughs> and I'm not saying that because you're here, Dan. I'm saying that because no, I, I, I really appreciate that. I, 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 uh, I like hearing that from from people that are in this space, and that's that's. You know, that's whom I'm 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 appealing to. This is something that I don't want I don't want any of you guys to think that I'm pandering mm -hmm. or or treating the audience lightly. Um, you know, I'm 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 part of this demographic. I'm I've I've lived and breathed this for many, many years. And whether you you buy into the the reality or not, I think most everyone will dial into Carl as a character that, oh yeah, a, a part of Carl is me. I identify with Carl on some level and, um, and that's as honest as I can make it. So, 
So yeah. hopefully, hopefully uh, people will appreciate that. No, absolutely. Uh, I think we're going to wrap things up. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's it for this particular edition of uh, the alien invasion, which is a galactic netcast production. I want to thank you so much, Dan, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule uh, to talk with us uh, about Skyman and, and give us some insight into, you know, where you were at and, and how you came up with the film and, and how you put it together. Um, where else can people find out more about you and Skyman one more time? Well, you can go to skymanthemovie.com, which is the, which is the website. You can also go to my production company site, which is gangofrobots.com. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can go to the Facebook page, which is the Skyman movie uh, Facebook page, which is, we're now over a hundred thousand followers. So, nice. um, if you want to sign up and follow our progress through the Facebook page, please do. Um, we're, we're, we are just getting started with this. So, um, it should be a lot of fun. And, and again, it's, it'll be a cool ride and everyone involved, um, you know, should, at least I, I hope, will will find something intriguing um and interesting with with what we're doing because it's not only just the movie itself but it's the way we're shooting it it's the way we're presenting it it's the way we're marketing it um it's sort of opening up this broader discussion um about about you know intelligent life what's out there so all this other stuff surrounding the movie itself um i think is is the bonus is the, is the, is the, you know, value added component of the movie, if you will. So that's, that's a lot of fun too. Sure. Well, I got to say, based on our interview here and our full discussion, it really sounds like a, a labor of love and it sounds like you put a lot of thought and effort into it. So I, I have a feeling it's going to be a success. So I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also want to thank uh, Monkey Warhol for providing our intro music that you'll hear in the actual podcast uh, version of this. Uh, his song is called Alien Syndrome, and you can find that song and more of Monkey Warhol's stuff at monkeywarhol.bandcamp.com. And also to what? Uh, Redfard von Dernberg. I knew I was going to stumble <laughs> over that. <laughs> A composer from Germany for our closing song called Be Water. And learn more about him and his music at thecaravel.net. And also, thanks to Ben Olson for recording our disclaimer audio at the start of this episode. And you can find out more about his stuff at benolson.com. And thank you for joining us. Yes, thank <laughs> you one and all. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, guys. And we'll talk to everyone later. Yeah. Bye. 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 This has been a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com.